happening? Welcome into the Matt Bernier Show, part of the In The Money Media Network. My name is Matt Bernier. You can follow me on Twitter at Bernier underscore Matt. This is Monday, April the 20th, 2020. Patriots Day here in Massachusetts. Should be Marathon Monday. There should be an 11 o'clock Red Sox game. Unfortunately, there isn't. We'll just have to wait a little bit longer for those sorts of things. What we do have, though, is episode 11 of the new and improved Matt Bernier's show. Uh, however you listen to this thing, thank you for doing so. number of ways. You have YouTube. You have Apple Podcasts. You have InTheMoneyPodcast.com. You have everywhere else you get your podcasts. You can find this thing. Uh, if you are over on YouTube, make sure that you subscribe to the In The Money page. Make sure you subscribe to my own personal page, Matt Bernier. The bell icon is right next to that subscribe button. Just make sure that's also lit up so you get notifications whenever anything is uploaded, whether it be this podcast on the In The Money page or something that I upload on my own, uh, whether it's talking about going back to prior races or, or maybe just sort of evergreen content, whatever the case may be. Then if you'd like to, you can follow me on Twitter at Bernie or underscore Matt. I will tweet different things out. Um, something I'm not going to announce today, but next Monday... Uh, I will announce uh, an exciting new venture that'll definitely play into this podcast, but also just in general, um, maybe a place that you'll need to go to find some of the picks uh, that I'll be putting out there that will be used for my pick history that we've gone over on this podcast for 10 episodes, 11 episodes now after you listen to this one. So something to look forward to next Monday. First things first, let's go over the two graded stakes races from Oakland this past weekend. We will go over the pick history updated through 88 races. That's the sample size now. I've long been saying 100 is kind of the sweet spot where we can start making some sort of uh, connections and make some some ultimate, you know, I don't want to say decisions, but you at least have some sort of a sample to be making um, educated reasoning off of. Uh, and then we'll dive into the Q&A. The Q&A will be similar to what uh, it's been last week and in weeks prior where a little bit more of just taking in different things that people have brought up and just kind of rapid fire as opposed to one individual comment or question and then doing a deep dive into that. So that's what's to come here. Hopefully this is a little bit of a tighter one, maybe in that 30, 35 minute range. Let's dive into the count fleet. And I know the grade one is the apple blossom, but I'll just take them sort of in order. Race eight and then race 10. Race eight was the count fleet, six furlongs down at Oaklawn. Um, and it was won by Whitmore in a rather impressive fashion. Uh, the big talk coming out of that race, though, was Flagstaff and the start and how much the best he was. And when I first went back and watched the race, I watched it live and then I watched one replay. And uh, I tweeted out the little uh, face palm emoji because I liked Flagstaff quite a bit in there. I got the price I was looking for. I anticipated him to be in a position relatively similar to Whitmore, maybe even a little bit closer to the pace. Unfortunately, he lunges out of the gate, spots the field a number of lengths, even has to check again down the backside at one point. And from there, Rosario just sort of bides his time, waits, waits, and comes with a giant, giant late finish. When I first watched the race, I said, oh, I mean, how much the best was Flagstaff in this spot? But I said, you know what, let me wait and watch the tape. I watched the tape and, you know, then I noticed that the pace kind of fell apart a little bit. And then I said, you know, I, I, I still need to go back and watch it again. So I've watched the race a few more times. 
From a housekeeping standpoint, Whitmore earns a 96 buyer and a raw 120 time form US rating. Those of you that are new to this, uh, I look at the raw time form rating. I don't look at the pace adjusted one. I'll I'll do my own sort of uh, analysis of did the pace help or hurt such a horse. And that's not to knock the guys over at time form US. It's just the way that I prefer to go about it. So the 120 time form US rating, the 96 buyer, they're relatively close. I suppose you could look at it and say maybe the buyer is a little light. It could maybe come up to the 100 range, which would put them both on that 20 point differential, which I, I've made mention a number of times. Um, Flagstaff earns a 94 buyer, a 118 raw time form rating. But when you go through and you look at the pace situation and the way that this race was run, for what it's worth, time form US did not award this race red fractions. Uh, at face value, they went 21 and 3, 44 and 3. They stopped the clock in 108 and 4. So clearly the racetrack was on the swifter side. But I look at where the pace horses ended up in relation to the winners and let's just say the top three or four finishers in the race. And at the quarter call, the first quarter, uh, which is the, the pace call for sprint races at six furlongs, your pace setter ended up finishing sixth. The horse in second ended up finishing 11th out of 11. That was Bobby's Wicked One. The horse in third, Hidden Scroll, ended up seventh. The horse in fourth, Wendell Fong, ended up fifth. Then you go to the fifth place horse at that time, Mr. Jaegermeister. He ended up ninth. You're seeing a trend here. Anyone that was close to this thing early on ended up up the track. And yes, some of them were a little bit overmatched, but at the same time, Hidden Scroll was 7-2 to two, and Bobby's Wicked One was 9-2. to two. So it's not like we were talking about tomato cans that finished up the track. There were some legitimate runners that were involved early on and they paid the price. Then you look at a horse like Whitmore, who was then 6th. And yes, he was a few lengths in behind. Let's say when all was said and done, if I do a quick sort of tally in my head at the first call, at the quarter mark... Uh, he was 0 0.1, 1.1, 1.2, 1.7, 2.2. He it was a, between two and a quarter and two and a half lengths behind the pace. So not right up on it, but relatively close to a swift one. Then you look at him at the half. He's sitting third, only just a little more than a half length off the pace situation. When you compare that to the horses that finished second, third, and fourth in the race, you had Flagstaff, who was in 10th. You had Maniwa, who was in 7th. You had Nitrous, who was in 9th. This, to me, more and more that I look at it and the more and more I watch it, as impressive as the effort was from Flagstaff, to me, Whitmore ended up running the best race which is not really breaking news because he was the favorite at post time, three to one, albeit a little bit lukewarm, but he's a rock solid racehorse. He shows up and runs his race each and every time. If you are someone that's a, a weight player, he was carrying one of the highest weights. I mean, he and, he and Flagstaff were in at 121 and 122. There was only one other horse that was above 120 pounds. Everyone else was 119 or less. Many of the horses in the 118, 117 range. I've spoken about it in the past. I, To me, I don't care about four pounds. It doesn't make a difference to me. On a thousand pound animal, it, it just doesn't make a difference. But I understand some folks that would say if you lose by a nose, that four pounds made a difference. To me, that's just, a, it's too simple a way to look at things. Going back and looking at the race, I feel like Whitmore did run the best race. I don't know that I will ever look at Whitmore and say he is... I don't know that Whitmore is ever at any point in his career going to be considered the best sprinter that there was in any year. And I don't mean that as a slight or a knock against the horse. 
But I think that's part of what makes me look at Whitmore and say, he's a great horse, but he's he's never been a superstar. And and I think you have to be honest about that sort of thing. It's no different than in another sport where you have, let's say, an all-star who at no point is ever in the top two or three as far as MVP voting is concerned. Or if you just took a poll of, of the general public and said, is this player a top three player in the league? If they never get into that, but they're a perennial all-star, that doesn't mean that they're not a bad that they're a bad player. It just doesn't mean that they're ever of the the cream of the crop. And I'm sure some people will listen to that and take that as just an immediate slight and a knock and and me trying to to poke holes in the source. I'm not. But I, I just if you put Whitmore and he's run giant races in other spots. He's a Grade One winner. He won up at Saratoga in a Grade One. I'm I'm can't you know stress this enough. He's not a bad horse. He's a very very good horse. But I just I, I think there is a difference between. I, he, I, just to me, he's never, how good is your good is always sort of a, a barometer for me of analyzing where horses stack up. Uh, a horse like, and I know I'm using the, the, the extremes here, but a horse like Arrowgate, he, how good was his good? Was the, was the length of it as impressive as Whitmore's? No, not by a long shot. The fact that Whitmore is still this good at age seven that to me is more impressive than any of than really any of the individual races he's ever run and the fact that he's never been the top one or two in his division that doesn't really bother me when he's 7 years old he's just an old warhorse and he shows up and runs each and every time that's commendable but with a horse like Arrowgate his best was unbelievable uh, uh let's just use sprinters just to kind of keep the apples to apples comparison a horse like Run Happy Run Happy's best was exceptional. Whitmore's best is really, really good. I don't know that I've ever seen a race from Whitmore and said exceptional. Just something to keep in mind. Having said all that, I think he ran the best race here. Flagstaff is going to be way over bet in his next start. Whether he deserves to be a heavy favorite or not, I don't. at this point it doesn't really matter. He's going to be over bet on the heels of this effort. And that's, again, it's not really a, a, a bad thing or a good thing. If you think he should be one to five in his next start and he goes off at three to five, then you got value there. If you think he should be even money and he goes off at three to five, that's an underlay. And at a short, short price, you can certainly pass that race. That that $3 and change is not going to make or break your year. So I think these are things that you want to keep in mind going forward when you analyze races, when you think about horses that you want to take notes on. I didn't even make a note on Flagstaff. I made a note in Formulator. I didn't, I don't have anything as far as a stable alert is concerned for him because when he shows up, he's going to get bet. It doesn't really do me much. Everyone saw the trip. Everyone saw the effort. It was really, really strong. He's in great form. He's probably better a little bit longer, six and a half, seven furlongs. I'd be curious about him at a one-turn mile, but everyone saw this race. So I'm not in a rush to bet him back. He's going to be over bet. Whether he deserves to be whatever price he's going to go off in his next start, that remains to be seen, and we'll find out what field that looks like. But uh, it was a fun race. It was a good race. But when you go through and look, 
I think you want to be a little bit kinder to the horses that were forwardly placed. And I know that, you know, the sort of the other hot button horse coming out of this race was uh, Hidden Scroll. And Hidden Scroll has developed this sort of, he's a polarizing horse because he was so good early on and the expectations were so high. And he has certainly not lived up to expectation. There's no, you can't sugarcoat that. But at the same time, I, you know, the, the people that are going to pile on him for a start like this and an effort like this, that to me is is silly. Because if you believe that the pace fell apart, which I, when you just look at it objectively, I'm not sure how you couldn't say that. What chance did he have when he was up there? He was the one that was actually on the lead half mile into the race. So how can I sit there and criticize the horse? For, okay, look, is he as good as Whitmore? No. Is he as good as Flagstaff? No. Maybe some people thought he was, and, and who knows? Maybe at some point he will turn into that. But to sit here and bash him for this race, that to me is silly. This shouldn't be the race. If you have an opinion of him that's negative, it shouldn't be because of this race at Oaklawn on Saturday afternoon. It should be because of what you've seen in the past in other prior races. Because in this race, the flow was not to his advantage. And it'd be one thing if other horses that were deeply involved in it stayed on. Only one horse did. And he happens to be an old war horse in Whitmore. I'm not going to hold this race against Hidden Scroll. I'm also not somebody that's, you know, I'm not one of those dyed-in-the-wool fans. If he wins races, great. If he loses races, what do I care? I'm not involved with the horse, and I've never been a huge fan. He's just another horse for me that if he shows up in a race and I think he fits, I'll give him a look. And if he shows up in a race and I think he's overmatched, then I won't. I won't give him a look, but I'm not going to sit here and knock him and just say, oh, this is an example. He's got no heart. Stop. What chance did he have in this race with the way that it was run? Unless you think he's a superstar. And for those of you that think he's a superstar, you're basing that off of one race in his career debut? He's not as bad as some people are making him out to be, and he's not the superstar some want him to be at this point. Maybe in time that'll change, but for right now, he just is what he is. He's a fine horse, and maybe he does need to go a little bit longer. And maybe the maybe he does need things to be a little bit easier on him, which is a knock, no question. But to base your analysis of this horse off of this race, given the pace situation, where he was in relation to it, and how it unfolded, I think that's a little bit short-sighted and a little bit silly. Let me know if you agree or disagree, uh, either beneath the video player on the YouTube channel or on Twitter at Bernie or underscore Matt. Make no mistake about it. The top two, I think, were the best horses. Whitmore and Flagstaff. Flagstaff may have had the flashier performance in defeat, but Whitmore, you got to tip your cap to the old boy. He just shows up and wins. He shows up and runs good races. Time and time again, the seven-year-old, he continues on. He gets the job done in the Count Fleet Sprint. The other graded stakes race was the grade one Apple Blossom race number 10 on the card Saturday, mile and a 16th. Th this, was, this was one of those races that when you go into it, you, you already kind of know how it's going to play out. You'd be stunned if they allowed a horse like Serengeti Empress to just get back out there and waltz on the front end. And I say waltz, to her credit, and Niazari, she didn't waltz. She went out there and set a wicked pace and nobody else could run with her early. And the only other horse that in theory was going to keep her company up front, ends up dumping the rider out of the gate, and now you have a closer who's forced to kind of do something that she doesn't really want to do, get up there, push the pace throughout. Or get, I shouldn't say push it because Street Band never got close. But the point is, it, it seemed highly unlikely that in a grade one, 
everyone else was just going to let Serengeti Empress out there on the front end and just walk the dog. I don't know that anybody saw this sort of pace situation playing out where from a fractional standpoint, you could make the argument that they went as fast as some slower sprints would early on, a 22 and one, 45 and two, 10 and one for three quarters, and they stopped the clock in 43 flat. Serengeti Empress doesn't make the lead in here. Ollie's Candy is aggressively ridden from the get-go beneath Rosario. Uh, in hindsight, a brilliant move. You have other horses that are relatively close to the front end. Cookie Dough is up there pushing the fractions early on. Serengeti Empress ends up 3-4 uh, path and sitting off the pace. I've seen people... I, I mean, I've, I'm in a thread where there are two people going back and forth, and I happen to be in the middle of it, uh, talking about how Serengeti Empress was buried, uh, what does buried mean, and, you know, meaning this in, in relation to just getting, you know, destroyed on the racetrack. I, this isn't, to me, this is not an example of that. Yes, the pace situation was supersonic. We'll dive into that even more. But Serengeti Empress, I mean, it, it's abundantly clear at this point in her career, anyone that would suggest otherwise, I don't know what you're looking at. She wouldn't pass a parked car. So I'm not going to say that she got buried by this when you know the minute she didn't make the front, she wasn't winning. So, I, look, I don't care if she loses by 500 lengths in that sort of instance. If she doesn't make the front, she's not winning, period. So, did she get buried? Yeah, by final margin of victory, Sure. But I, I knew she was toast when she didn't make the front. And I think if you go through and look at her career, I, I don't know how you could come to a different conclusion that if she doesn't get the front end, she ain't winning. At least against graded stakes company. I just it, It's not going to happen. We'll get back to her in a bit. Uh, the fact that Ollie's candy is in this thing at all is, is remarkable given the pace situation. She is up there pushing it and actually takes over a uh, half mile into the race, uh, which for route races would be the first pace call. For her to be remotely close to this thing would be impressive. The fact that she loses by a head to a really, really talented horse in CC for Michael McCarthy. Uh, I mean, th th this is this is one of those races where you, yes, she lost, but I mean, she was, I think she was the best horse in the race. Timeform US had all the fractions color coded red, meaning they had the. It was a fast pace throughout. Uh, CC earned a 98 buyer in a raw 119 Timeform US rating. Ollie's Candy a 98 buyer in a raw 119 Timeform US rating. If you use the pace adjusted figures from Timeform, uh, you get a 124 from Ollie's Candy. In many ways, this was the best race of her career, and she didn't win. Um, I, I'm not stating the obvious when I say this is a horse. I'm not stating the obvious. I am stating the obvious. When I say that this is a horse that you're going to look at and say with a softer pace situation, she very likely wins this race. And I th But again, the problem is everyone is going to have that opinion. I think she'll be over bet coming out of this race. And as much as I love Ollie's Candy, I loved her when she was a three-year-old, when they were trying her on the dirt and the turf. Hell, I picked her in the Breeders' Cup distaff last year on NBC. So it's not like this. I'm, you know, just making this up. I've loved Ollie's Candy for a long, long time. This is probably the best race she's ever run, and she'll be overbet out of this race, and I would be inclined, depending on what the, the field looked like, to try to beat her in whatever next race she ran in. That's not to say that she couldn't win any of those, and again, this is all hypothetical because I don't know what the next race for her is going to look like, but I, this is just another one of those races where everyone saw it, 
and everyone is going to take note of it. And typically, when everyone does one thing, you'd like to zag, unless you think it's just an absolute no-brainer. As far as the winner goes, CC, this is, this is an impressive resume she's putting together already, and in a very odd year, you could make the case, and I would say you probably have to make the case, that she is the leader in the clubhouse for older fillies and mares on dirt. She has the grade one beholder mile. She has the grade one apple blossom now. The impressive thing for me with CC here was, yes, she sat off the pace, relatively off the pace. I mean, she was probably four or five lengths back while the real running was going on early. But she was wide throughout, every step of the way. Victor Espinosa had her uh, probably three, four path rounding the first turn. Down the backside, she was probably even wider than that, four or five path, five, six. Uh, rounding the far turn, probably that four or five path, and she turned for home and, and she went and got the job done. I, I, would, I don't know this for certain. This is my opinion. I'd be very curious to know what the folks involved with this filly believe. I think she still lacks focus. And I think, you know, if you just watch the tape and you watch the way that she runs, that is going to sound like a ridiculous statement. But I had written in my notes from the Beholder Mile that when she made the front, I thought she idled. And I, I'm pretty sure I said it on, on this pod when, when she did run a few weeks back that the ears just went up and I thought she just kind of threw it into neutral. I, there was a part where, and, and it, look, it, it may be nothing more than coincidence, but this is how I go through and when I watch tape, these are the things that I look at. In deep stretch, when Victor's all over her, her ears at one point go straight back up like a rabbit's. And she doesn't stop running, but I don't know that she's totally focused on the task at hand. And I, I know it, it may not even make sense because she ended up winning the race and what difference does it make? But I just, I, I still, I wonder if there's a, a slight lack of focus. The good news is the races have still been so good that maybe it doesn't make a difference. But there's, I'm just curious, and I'm not a horseman, I don't know, uh, the, th the first thing about training a horse. But... I, I would be curious if that's something that, if that is the case, and let's not even say, even if it's not the case for her, if it's the case for any horse, they run really, really well, but they may lose focus for a moment. Is that enough for you to go and make an equipment change? Or do you look at it and say, if it ain't broke, don't fix it? I would be fascinated to hear from someone who knows more about actual day-to-day -day training of a horse and caring for a horse than, than I ever will. That, that would be one of those things. Go back and watch that stretch run. At one point, and I believe there's a shadow, when she does make that little, the ears go up, and then look, she ends up kind of not pinning them back again, but she re-engages, and obviously we know the result. That would be the only other thing I would throw out there, is that I feel like I still don't know that she's a finished product, which is fascinating, because she's awesome right now. She's really, really good, and I'm very excited to see what she can do going forward. I think if you're thinking down the road, Breeders' Cup time at Keeneland, I think you at least have to consider right now that CC is on the short list. She might even be the favorite if they ran the race today. She's very, very talented. Midnight Bisu might have something to say about that, but CC is is going the right direction. Ollie's Candy already touched on her. I mean, I don't know what else there really is to say. Uh, the if it, if the if the international trip horse, according to uh, PTF, is not Ollie's Candy in here, and it's not trip in the sense that she had traffic trouble and whatnot. It was just that she was out there cutting out those fast fractions and she paid the price. If it's not her, 
the international trip horse in the race, no question about it, is Horologist. Now, Horologist is still a horse that I do wonder if she's in the right spot, you still may be able to get some decent value. And I say the right spot, going up against tough company, going up against a horse like a CC or an Ollie's Candy, because you know they're going to get bet in those spots. Whereas if Horologist comes back in a grade two or a grade three, and you know a, a lesser horse is going to be the favorite that day, Horologist is probably going to be vying for favoritism. Coming off that far turn, she looked like she was loaded. And I was torn between her and Street Band. I ultimately went with Street Band. Uh, no excuse for Street Band. She had a good pace setup. She was down on the inside. She came with a run. Wasn't good enough. Uh, she lost the photo for third. It's a point of honor. But Horologist, I would have been very, very curious to see. Had she not been stopped, does she go on and threaten to win this thing? Because it looked like she was ready to fire. And the fascinating thing for me with Horologist was her race at Laurel in the most recent start, and this is again just a sort of case study on speed figures, the buyers for that run, most recently at Laurel, she earned a 91, but the raw time form rating was 121. So that was one of those cases where there's there's a legitimate difference there. If you want to use the 20-point sort of differential, you could make the case if you're believing the time form rating, that she ran closer to a 100 buyer or a 101, which would put her right in the thick of things. Or if you want to decide with the buyers, then that would mean that her time form rating was entirely too high and it should have been closer to a 110. Going through and looking at the horses and knowing what certain horses were capable of doing, I was more inclined to think it was closer to the 120 that time form had assigned her. And this race, maybe it'll get, maybe people will look at it and say she's still a little bit under the radar. But boy, anybody that watches the Apple Blossom is going to see. She gets stopped cold at the top of the lane. I would have been very curious to see what she would have done or could have done had she been able to run through and and get clear and and threaten the girls up at the top. Uh, Point of honor, she checked early on. It was the best thing that could have happened for her because the pace was supersonic. She came with her run. She's not going to get a better pace set up than that. She's one that probably would appreciate more ground. It's only a mile and a 16th. Get her out to a mile and an eighth, maybe a mile and a quarter. Um, Lady Apple, I've always been a fan of. This was just sort of an even effort from her. Getting back to Serengeti Empress, there's a part of me that believes, while she is incredibly fast, that the speed is not fast enough in seven-eighths type races. Maybe it's close. One turn mile, maybe it's close, depending on the you know who else is running in the race, if there is any other pace. I, to me, her speed, her breakneck speed, is best going longer. Now, if you get a situation like this and someone goes out there and they're going to go 45 and 2, I mean, there's not a heck of a lot you can do unless you're on a full-blown send mission. I would argue if she can get to races at a mile and an eighth or longer, mile and a half even, uh, excuse me, a mile and a quarter even, race like the Delaware Handicap. I almost wonder if if you're at a point with her where she's like game on dude. And that's a, that's a compliment. But it's also a, a bit of a knock at the same time where if you can get out there and set the pace and you can go really fast, not only do you control things because this is the way that you run your best and you excel, but you run everyone else off their feet and you kind of take them out of their game. And I feel like that's exactly what happened in the Azari. She went out there, wicked pace early on. You had girls that were typically closers that needed to be closer to the pace. And it just kind of threw everything off. And she went out there and won by 100. At longer distances, 
the 45 and three, the 45 and four is going to play better than it would here. And again, I, you know, there are going to be instances and times where you just get crazy, crazy speed situations. It's not going to work to your advantage. We saw that with Game On Dude basically every time in the Breeders' Cup Classic. There were other speed horses that went out there and they dissuaded him. And he didn't make the front and he didn't run. He's the, he was the kind of horse, case in point, like like perfect prime example to, to me anyway. As awesome as he was, if he didn't make the front, he wasn't running. And that's why I always loved Breeders' Cup Classic races with him in it because I said he's going to be the favorite and he may not make the front. And if he doesn't, he ain't winning. And guess what? And times when he didn't win, he didn't run either. You know, you go back to that Breeders' Cup at Churchill where he almost won and Drosselmeyer came and ran him down. They put him right out there on the front and said, we're going we're gonna to go on with it. You had other races with him where he didn't make the front and he didn't run. I think it's the same way with Serengeti Empress. But I think the best thing she could do is use that speed going longer, mile and an eighth, mile and a quarter. Um, I, you know, this is going to sound wild, but maybe I, I wouldn't be afraid of taking on boys going longer distances and saying, this is our game. We're going to go 46 to the half. We're going to try to run them off their feet. Maybe it doesn't work. You can find races against the females. Don't get me wrong. But I, I think... The longer, the better for Serengeti Empress because the speed plays better to clear off to the front at longer distances than it does at shorter and middle. I hope that makes sense. If if it doesn't, let me know. But there are going to be other quality speeds at shorter and middle distances that can be make life miserable for Serengeti Empress, whereas at longer distances, the quality speed is not necessarily there and the, the quality speed that she possesses is very unlikely to be there at longer distances. So she can get out there, open up by two or three lengths, and then maybe she just swells up and gets brave and says, you know, we can, we can just run all day. Something to keep an eye on. Uh, come dancing, uh, you know, a lot of people were having a good time with it on Twitter. I agreed 100%. I mean, there was there was no scenario whatsoever where she'd be the favorite. She was the three-to-one morning line choice. I, I just... First time two turns against Great Stakes Company. First time at Oakland. First time with Lucas against a good field like this. Other speed off the like. I mean, there were a million reasons she wasn't going to be the favorite. Um, I'm not going to hold this race against her. I don't think she's a two turn horse. I don't know. You know, I'll be. I, I assume she'll go back to New York once racing gets going again. But um, it's just a peculiar position. Um, Cookie Doe, a horse that's I've always maintained better shorter, but she was proving me wrong at Gulfstream. So uh, maybe they just get her back in a reasonable position and again at a more reasonable pace for a horse like that. So um, those are some thoughts here with this race. I'll be curious again what you all have to think uh, beneath the video player here on YouTube or on Twitter at Bernie or underscore Matt for those of you that are listening uh, on the pod. Uh, you know, all around CC top level. Think she is a legitimate threat to win the Breeders' Cup Distaff if she stays in form like this. Ollie's Candy, to me, the best race she's ever run, bar none. The question now is how many people pay attention to this race and does she get over bet? I also said, uh, Naomi Tucker uh, commented when I put out the tweet that, you know, Ollie's Candy, you know, an outstanding performance. Um, You know, I think she's just as good on grass. And I do wonder if if a horse like this, if she, I've always, uh, you know, she's she's always been a horse that's going to be forward. She's never going to come from 100 out of it. But if she can go this fast on dirt, 
could she could she do that sort of thing at a mile on grass? You know, I don't know that I love her out to a mile on an eighth and, and longer. So if you're thinking Breeders' Cup type of races, maybe the Philly and Mare Turf, that's not, that's going to be too far for her. But, I mean, could she get out there at a mile and try to be like a Sydney's candy? I know she's twirling candy, it's her sire, but, you know, could, could she just be that sort of horse that gets out there and drops a 45 and 4 or a 45 and 2 like she did on Saturday and she can just keep going? She's one I'd love to see back on the grass at some point. I don't know if they'll ever do it, but I'd love to see that. Cece gets the job done. Another grade one. She's the leader in the clubhouse as far as the Phillies and Mares on Dirt are concerned. Uh, but obviously there are other horses to keep an eye on coming out of this race, the Apple Blossom. Let's dive into the updated pick history as well as this week's Q&A. All right, let's button things up with the updated pick history as well as a little bit of back and forth Q&A with some listeners and viewers' questions and comments. Beginning with the Q&A, uh, good week for me last week, particularly on Friday. The sample size is up to 88. I've long said if we can get to 100, I think that's when you can start to draw some conclusions about where things stand, where things need to be improved, this, that, and the other. I've long maintained the win percentage should end up somewhere around 23, between 25 and 22% somewhere in there. The win play show rate should end up around 55%. Uh, through 88 races, the win rate is now at 22% and the ROI is at $2.20. That is a 10% positive increase. Uh, excuse me, a 10% positive return on investment at this point. Uh, you would have wagered $176. You would have had $194 return for every two. So we're into the black and the win percentage is back on the right track. Uh, the win play show situation has improved 51%, still a little bit light, but it's on the right path. The ROI, $1.92. That would be a minus 4% return on investment. $528 wagered, $505.80 returned. It's an interesting uh, sort of comparison because I know I've, I don't think there's a right or a wrong wager for people to be making. Some people belabor the point that it, it you should be in certain pools, this, that, and the other thing. I'm not going to tell you what you should and shouldn't bet. That's up to you. And I think people that do, what difference does it make? If you want to bet... Uh, you know, the, the place pick all, go ahead. What do I care? Doesn't make a difference to me. It's probably not going to be great long-term for you, but I don't care what you bet. All I can do is just try to show or give suggestions and reasoning for playing in certain pools or the way that I'll go about doing certain things, but I am the last person that's going to sit there and say, you shouldn't be doing something. Do whatever the hell you want. It's your money. And I think people that do, it's just worry about yourself. Don't worry about other people. Um... The interesting thing here for me, and this is sort of bared out with all the other uh, pick samples that I've had over the past three or four years for public selections, the win return on investment is typically higher than the win play show. The percentage, though, of strike rate is going to be dramatically higher for the win play show than it is for the win rate. And this, this probably sounds elementary and pretty basic, but... The reasoning is you're only betting $2 at a time on the win side of things as opposed to $6 at a time for the win play show. And, you know, the numbers, the number of times that let's say you run third for the win play show, technically the win percentage is going to go up. 
but I've already punted $4 away because I'm not getting anything back for the win or for the place in that situation or that circumstance. And depending on what I get back for show money, in all likelihood, it's probably going to be somewhere in that 2 or $3 range. So I'll be taking, what, a bit of a loss there as well? You know, I mean, in the grand scheme, I'll pick up a buck. So that's why that ROI for the win play show is going to be more difficult to keep up than necessarily the win rate would be. But at the same time, you can always get those sort of 20 to 1 shots that run third, end up paying $8 to show, where you end up actually picking up a, a, a positive. You end up ahead for that one $6 win play show bet. You pick up 8 bucks, you've earned 2 and all you've done is run third. Meanwhile, you've just lost $2 on the win side of things. So it's, just, it's always fascinating to see, for me to see what works, what doesn't, how it ends up transpiring and playing out the whole nine. So there's the updated situation there. Sample size of 88. Win percentage is at 22% with a $2.20 ROI. Uh, the win play show is at 51% with a 192 ROI. Again, next Monday, I will be, in all likelihood next Monday, I'll be announcing that the picks that I have been putting out on Twitter, they won't be going out on Twitter anymore. They'll be living somewhere else. And I will continue to update the pick history as far as the pod is concerned. But if you want to see those picks... You're going to have to go somewhere else to find them. That's a tease. I'll tell you all about that next Monday. Um, as far as the Q&A this week is concerned, this is just going to be more kind of riffing from taking a look at some of the comments from beneath last week's show. You can find that and all the other episodes over on the In The Money page on YouTube, or you can just type in Matt Bernier Show. It'll pop up. Um, I'll just start right with the top one here, and I've pulled up her PPs. Alex Kibrick, who uh, has listened to the the pod pretty consistently, so thank you for that, Alex. Great show, Matt. Keep it up. Interested in your thoughts on Baffert's Philly Auberge. This is sort of in relation and tying it into last week's under-the-radar three-year-old Phillies. Auberge is a three-year-old Philly. They paid $570,000 for her in May of 2019. Listen to the pedigree. She's by Palace out of a broken vow. Excuse me, a... Broken Vow mayor named Prenuptial Vow. Get it? Broken Vow. Prenup. Um, she's an Iowa bred, though. Always found that interesting. Paid a boatload of cash for her. She's run three times. Uh, two wins in a second place finish. The runner-up finish came in the grade two Santa Inez. Uh, that was behind Bass. Unfortunately, Bass has been retired. Auberge, to me, the interesting thing is she she's run three essentially carbon copies uh, from a buyer standpoint, from a running style standpoint, she's speed going shorter. She wants to go right to the front. All three races, she's been on the lead turning for home. The buyers that she's earned 84, 84, 83. The other concern would be at this point, and I don't know anything else about what's going on with Auberge. Uh, she, I don't have a published work since March 27th. So, uh, maybe she just needs some time or whatever the case may be. I don't know. I haven't read anything. Uh, but Auberge, maybe she's one you want to keep an eye on as far as sprinters are concerned. Uh, some other pieces that we can touch on from a Q&A standpoint. Uh, one of the questions in here from, where are we? I know I saw it the other day. Where was it? Kane Williamson. First time listener, awesome show. Shooters shoot definitely flattered Charlatan this past weekend. Talking about, obviously, Baffert's horse Charlatan. Uh, what do you think Baffert will do with him if he doesn't get in the Arkansas Derby? Also, who would you take going forward this year, Tom's Detat or Improbable? Uh, as far as... I don't have much of an opinion or much of a thought on the, the Shooters shoot Charlatan situation. 
you know, the difficult thing is right now with the soon-to-be lack of racing, because once Oakland closes down, uh, Tampa Bay Downs, their meet is wrapping up relatively soon. Gulfstream doesn't have anything major as far as graded stakes are concerned or stakes for three-year-olds. Um, Belmont has been pushed back. You know, I don't know what's going to happen at Churchill. So there's a bit of a, just a bit of a, a chasm as far as where you can and can't run. The nominations for the Arkansas Derby came out the other day. There's like 75 of them. It's something crazy because there's only one place to run them. If you got a good three-year-old, you got to run them somewhere. So I don't really know where any of that stuff is going to shake down. I looked more into the second piece to that puzzle, the, the Tom's Data versus Improbable sort of proposition. Improbable is never going to be a horse that I love. Uh, I said it when we did uh, Friday's happy hour um, over on the Breeders' Cup Facebook page with uh, PTF and JK and Naomi and Spencer. and um, You know, I, <sighs> improbable, I thought he was the best two-year-old that Baffert had at that time. He went and he won the low South futurity. He really hadn't done anything wrong in his career. But as more and more time has gone by, he just... He's a bit of a nutcase as far as the gate is concerned. And I don't know what his best game is. I think he's better at the middle distances, but I don't know if he's better going one turn or if he's better going two turns. I thought his run in the Oklahoma Mile was really, really strong. Having said that, I don't know I don't know that I love the horse in any spot that he's gonna be in because he's always going to get bet. He's always gonna take money. And I don't know if he's fully outgrown his his sort of maturity issues. That doesn't mean that he can't continue to improve, but I just, of the two, I am much more inclined to look at a horse like Tom's Data, who, at this point now, he's a stakes winner between a mile and a mile and an eighth. He's a grade one winner at a mile and an eighth. Uh, he's a multiple graded stakes winner at a mile and an eighth. Al Stahl has done a masterful job with a horse who early in his career could not stay on the racetrack. He just could not stay on the racetrack. He would get hurt all the time. And for him to still not only be able to overcome all of his hiccups and injuries, but for Stahl to have this horse essentially campaign a, a full campaign last year and then come back this year and be just as good at a mile at a distance that is probably far shorter than what he is best at. I mean, you got to tip your cap to Al Stahl and this horse in general, Tom Stahl, he's just a really neat horse. He's developed. Uh, my buddy Dan Elman texted me after that race a couple weeks ago and he said he's just a cool horse. He's just a really neat horse who's finally put it all together. And, you know, maybe he's not a, you know, he's a grade one winner. He won the Clark last year, last fall at Churchill. Is he a Breeders' Cup classic type? Or, or I, I don't know. I mean, I feel like that might be pushing it a little bit. Uh, but at the same time, he's not that far off. He's just a really neat horse. I think he is more reliable than Improbable is. I think I know what I'm going to get from Tom's Data each and every time as opposed to Improbable where his best is pretty darn good, but he's got to behave himself. So... Maybe that's a long-winded way of saying I would just prefer Tom's Data. I also don't have distance concerns necessarily with Tom's Data. I don't know about a mile and an eighth, but a mile and a, uh, excuse me, about a mile and a quarter. Mile and an eighth's not a problem for him. Uh, wet track's not a problem for him. So improbable. I, I feel like he's probably best at one turn. Is it a one-turn mile? Is it seven-eighths of a mile? He ran really well here at the two-turn mile. I would take Tom's Data. That's just my personal opinion.
Uh, and there was one other comment in here that I was going to touch on. Da, 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 da. Where are we? Uh, you know, we had some folks that, that chimed in uh, late in the week, uh, you know, after this past weekend's races on Saturday. Uh, the Flagstaff comments came up. Uh, someone, did, oh, Kane also brought up the uh, talking book situation, who I liked her a lot, and she's just, she's still learning. You can tell that she she still has issues with the gate. She's not the, the sharpest out of there. Um, and she didn't really seem to run in behind horses. It was once she got out into the clear, that's when she really fired home. I'm hopeful that's just sort of a maturation thing and she'll continue to improve. She's going to get bet heavily in that next spot, and that's kind of Kane's point here. Uh, he wouldn't mind Suge taking a shot in a stakes race, so you don't have to deal with a two-to-five shot. Um, knowing I'd be surprised if Suge did that sort of thing, just knowing his M.O., he typically gives them every chance to sort of learn on their own. Suge is also the master of the horses that as they get older, they continue to improve. Um, it's it's early for, for that filly. She might not be any kind of a price. She might not be worth a bet next time out because if you're, let's say she is odds on and she is thus far not a good gate horse and maybe she's a little bit immature running in behind horses, you know, that's not really necessarily a great recipe for a great bet. But having said that, I do like her a lot. I think there is some ability there. Um, we'll see what happens. It was unfortunate that she couldn't quite get there on, on Sunday afternoon, but good effort from her. And I think she continues to improve and, and we'll see what we get going forward. Any other questions, comments, thoughts, even, uh, the troll Joe Tro? I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna give you any more than that. I mean, you know, it is what it is. I appreciate it. And I said it last week, I'll take the good and the bad. Um, doesn't mean I'm going to read it, but I'll, I'll, I'll take the good with the bad questions, comments, concerns. Beneath the video player on YouTube or on Twitter at Bernie or underscore Matt. We're coming up into a little bit of a lean time from a steak standpoint. Uh, maybe I'll cook up something that's a little bit more evergreen next weekend or excuse me, next Monday. Uh, obviously, I'll have that announcement on next Monday about some picks and things of that nature where you can find that going forward. Um, but until then, again, anything you guys want to hear, because at the end of the day, that's all that matters. If, if you're interested and in, in intrigued with whatever the content is, that's all that matters. So if you have certain things that you want to hear or certain questions or whatever the case may be, you know how to get a hold of me because at the end of the day, if you guys aren't listening, this thing doesn't work. So there it is. You have in the moneypodcast.com, you have Apple Podcasts, anywhere else that you listen, audio only. If you're looking for some visuals as well over here on YouTube, subscribe, rate, review, thumbs up. It all goes a long way. I'll be back next Monday going over something who knows for episode 12 but until then this has been episode 11 of the matt bernier show good luck however you play whatever you play and wherever you play <laughs>